Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Jason Kern, President of Investment Management at Cortland. Cortland is one of the largest multifamily firms in the United States. Founded in 2005, they are now a global, vertically integrated multifamily investment, development, and management firm. Headquartered in Atlanta, they own and manage apartment communities across the United States, with regional offices in Charlotte, Dallas, Denver, Greenwich, Houston, and Orlando. Internationally, they operate a build-to-rent management and development platform in the UK. Jason oversees Cortland's investments, capital markets, corporate finance, investor relations, tax, and accounting teams. He has an impressive career with time spent at JP Morgan, HSBC Bank, and LaSalle Investment Management. In our conversation, we discuss what forces Jason thinks will bring buyers and sellers back to the table in 2023, investor sentiment, and why today's macroeconomic environment isn't the same as the Great Recession. Alrighty. Well, welcome to the show, Jason. It's great to have you with me today. Thank you, Brandon. Great to be here. I'd like to get started by asking each of our guests to spend a few minutes introducing yourself. Maybe you can provide a brief background on your professional history, and then we can spend a few minutes talking about Cortland and your role and what it is that the firm does. Uh, Yeah, I've been in the real estate space, generally speaking, for about 30 years, I would say. I spent the first 20 years of my career as an investment banker covering real estate companies, so advising publicly traded REITs and hotel companies and uh, private equity managers like uh, Cortland in doing M&A and IPOs and various capital raisings. I um, worked both in the U.S. for several years, but then also in Europe for a few years and Asia for seven years mostly with J.P. Morgan during that time. And uh, as you know, you and I ran into each other when I was out uh, in Asia based in Hong Kong. And then I came back to the U.S. in about 2013 to take over a role as CEO of the Americas for LaSalle Investment Management. So I had a good run there for eight years, running a team that was covering the U.S., Canada, and Mexico across really all property types, up and down the risk spectrum, uh, and across a number of funds and separate accounts. We were pretty successful in revamping that business and growing it pretty uh, appreciably uh, during that time. And then a little over a year ago, made the move to Cortland, where I currently serve as the president of investment management, just basically all of the investment, so acquisitions, asset management, capital raising, and also the finance side of things here. So my role is really to sort of run that business. We are, uh, as, as I think you know, a uh, Atlanta-based, but really spread uh, our business spread across the southeast sun belt and also in the mountain west and desert mountain areas uh, we do nothing but multifamily and we are the uh, i would say quintessential sharpshooters so deeply vertically 
integrated and focused on one property type alone, which is multifamily. So highly operationally focused, very much integrated all the way down to the design, construction, development, property management side of things, as well as being investment manager. And I know that Cortland was founded in 2005, and you've been with the firm, as you said, for a little over a year. It's been an interesting kind of story or growth story, if you will, and I think somewhat different than a lot of other investment managers. Can you give us the brief background on kind of the evolution of Cortland over the years and how it has evolved to the point where a president of investment management role that you fill exists today? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's there's a lot of other investment managers out there where the the founders of the leadership come from more of the financial services, investment banking side of things, and then they figure out how to raise capital, allocate capital, finance deals, find operating partners to make their strategies work well. I would say Cortland comes from the exact opposite end of the spectrum in the sense that the firm is originally and first and foremost, and really continues to be today, heavily focused on the operational side of things. We have 2,500 employees. Obviously, the vast majority of those are at the community level of our multifamily apartment buildings. And you know the focus is really on uh, serving the resident, making that resident experience the best it can possibly be, trying to be best in the business in terms of that sort of branded property management service that we provide really more coming from it from a hospitality perspective, frankly. And our mantra has been that if we do that right, that other everything else in sort of the value chain will take care of itself. We talk all the time about kind of a, a virtuous cycle or a flywheel of if our residents are happy, then our associates who work there at the communities are going to be happy. That's kind of what we're, we're very much focused on. But to your point, Cortland really has evolved. I would say only four or five years ago, you'd be hard-pressed to truly define Cortland as an investment manager, given that we were getting quite large, but really focusing on a deal-by-deal capital raising strategy with JV partners, very sophisticated JV partners, but didn't really have the the large commingled discretionary funds that are sort of the hallmark of, of an investment manager. So if I understand correctly, the business has evolved from one focused on development and deal-by-deal capitalization, originally probably with high net worth or friends and family type of capital, to a deal-by-deal manager with more institutional capital now to a maintaining that, but adding in funds management. Yeah, exactly right. Summarize it very well. And how do you anticipate, if at all, that changing over the next, call it one to five years as the business continues to evolve? I think we're on the right track now. I think the only question is, do we diversify over time? And you know, we, we shall see, but do we diversify into other sort of residential focused strategies, whether that's different parts of the risk spectrum, different adjacencies to the traditional multifamily apartment buildings uh, that we have done historically, or even geographically. We do have a, a growing business in the UK where we're developing build-to-rent assets there. So that uh, hopefully going forward will be a, a bigger and bigger part of our story as well. Before we move on to the macro environment and what you're seeing through the multifamily lens, let's talk a little bit about your expansion into the UK. I believe you're one of the first US-based managers to actively and aggressively expand into the UK. What was the impetus for that decision and how does the UK market compare or contrast to the US multifamily market as we know it? 
Yeah, there's uh, a lot of different systems, similarities. Uh, you know, we really started to focus on the UK before my time with Cortland, right after the original Brexit vote, and then went over there and tried to see, was there an opportunity? And we were quite surprised to see how different that market is just in terms of the sheer lack of institutional caliber players like ourselves. They're doing a, you know, a, an institutional quality high service model sort of, you know, management of rental apartments. So both from the product perspective in terms of actual high end, highly amenitized, modern, you know, high rise apartment buildings. And then again, also the operations side, there seemed to be a lot of low hanging fruit and just not nearly as much competition as what we were used to seeing in the U.S. context. And so that's always an intriguing sort of field of play when you see that. And then, so we've spent several years now building up a team. We now have over 300 employees uh, in the UK and a few projects that are going very, very well. We really like the long-term demographics. It's uh, it's an underbuilt market, much like the US, probably even more so. It's been hard to build this kind of product, but if you can get it built, uh, we're seeing very good rental growth, even recently with all of the inflation concerns and so forth. So we are very bullish long-term. Obviously, we have a bit of a speed bump in the market just in terms of the cost of debt and how do you finance deals and even you know supply chain logistics and inflation on materials when you're doing uh, development. So, so we're looking very closely at how we make the numbers work for future projects, but the ones we have ongoing are looking very, very positive. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the overview of Cortland. I'm sure we'll come back to elements of that as we move forward, but I want to move to the macroeconomic environment. You have deep experience in financial markets from your days as an investment banker operating in Asia, the United States, your days running a very large investment manager at LaSalle Investment Management. It's suffice to say, last year, I think can best be summed up as giving us all a bit of whiplash, right? There was a 400 bips increase in the Fed's fund rate, halt to lending kind of systemically or systematically. And, you know, the Fed has been very focused on getting the labor market in check. What is your take on the current market environment right now? And what are you looking at in terms of leading indicators of the changes that may be on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest you know, thing to look at is interest rates. Obviously, you can look at the Fed funds uh, rate or the SOPR curve or whatever you want to look at, and it's pretty unprecedented uh, what we're living through here today. Certainly, since the GFC, none of us have experienced anything quite this rapid in terms of a increase in a pretty fundamental assumption when you're talking about investing in you know yield producing <laughs> real estate. So it is making the numbers challenging unless and until the going in yields on on acquisitions you know start to change as you mentioned just the, the sheer availability of debt is becoming more challenging i will say that somebody like a Cortland is in a is in an enviable position in the sense that we still have access to debt and borrowing from you know some of the big banks who certainly value us as as one of the more active borrowers and big institutions that they deal with I fear that some of the smaller players in our business may may not be getting their calls uh, returned quite as rapidly as we, just with all these large banks having their own capital constraints uh, that are either being forced upon them or just being conservative and waiting like a lot of us to see for the next shoe to drop, so to speak. But, you know, it, it is making development numbers hard to pencil out. It's making acquisitions hard. And you have seen, uh, because of that, very much a, a sort of freezing of the deal activity. In all property types, but multifamily, which has been particularly active 
As you know, 2021, we did $350 billion worth of multifamily transactions uh, as an industry, which would have been a large number for all property types combined back in the day. And that has obviously you know, sort of fallen uh, off the map. Uh, Corland alone, we did 70 new apartment building acquisitions in an 18-month period from you know, the all of 2021 to the first half of 22. So we invested $7 billion in apartments during that 18 months, and then we've done nothing since, uh, just to give you a sense for how, how dramatic the change has been going from a deal a week to uh, no deals uh, for the last six months. How do you think that that's going to evolve over the next six months? Are you waiting for some sort of a market correction, whether it's the impending recession that I think we all can agree is when, not if? Or what do you think will kind of break this stalemate that we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a typical sort of bid-ass spread that you do find whenever there is turmoil in the market. This one is you know, particularly severe, I would say, but you've got that, that classic scenario where you have buyers who are, you know, sort of, you know, quote unquote, smelling uh, blood in the water, looking to get some distressed deals at discounted prices, seeing where interest rates have gone and trying to interpolate that into cap rates going up some, you know, material amount, which we may eventually get somewhere close to that. But at the same time, you have uh, a lot of well-capitalized owners and sellers who don't want to take a markdown where they're holding their assets on the balance sheet. And if they're not pressured into selling an asset either because of liquidity issues or because you know they're getting to the end of a debt financing or caps are expiring something of that nature you're going to have many fewer sellers willing to you know sort of sell into a distorted market like we have today where there's not as many buyers a lot of caution a lot of people with their uh, pens being you know put down and especially those high leverage buyers that uh, we had as major competition before and i suppose if there's couple of silver linings to the current interest rate environment. It's that a lot of the competition that we had been coming up against over the last couple of years have been those smaller private buyers, some of them using 70 to 80 uh, percent you know, LTV sort of leverage, but they were able to you know, make those numbers work with incredibly cheap debt. So I think a, a large swath of that competition has, at least for now, been taken off of the playing field and probably will be on the sidelines for some time here. The other sort of operational benefit to us in an in a interest rate environment like this is that it certainly has made, unfortunately, for single family home buyers, it's made you know purchasing a home extremely expensive. And it's you know, a little bit the same math that we do on the commercial or residential side. But if you're uh, going out to buy a home and your mortgage has gone from 3% to 7% overnight, it's obviously going to be very difficult. And that does benefit landlords like ourselves in the sense that Roughly 20% of our move-outs from our apartments are moving out to go buy their first home. Certainly, that number has shrunk dramatically, at least for the time being. So that, that can be a, a slight positive for us. So it's a, you know, it's a matter of discovery. I think as time goes forward, to answer your question, as we go into the first half, especially the second half of 2023, I think the first half is still going to be pretty slow as things work their way out. I think people are looking for some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the Fed's actions. And depending how you read the tea leaves in terms of, you know, some of the inflation numbers coming down, some of the employment numbers that have been coming in, I think those of us that are more optimistic or hopeful are expecting there to be a a sort of a clear end to the interest rate rising, you know, sort of policy moves. 
by the end of the first half of this year. And I think that alone can bring a lot of more certainty into the equation and have people making decisions and doing deals again, just even if they think interest rates will stay the same, much less starting to get cut again. And the other thing is, as I said, I think the, the sort of more motivated sellers will largely be motivated by debt that is maturing and that they can't or don't want to refinance or it's a, you know, there's so many small partnerships in this business where, uh, you know, the equity partners would have to cut an equity check in order to pay down a loan with, with new debt service coverage ratios with the higher interest rates and so forth. And they're not going to want to do that or not be able to do that. These interest rate caps, you know, are incredibly expensive now and to replace those can be prohibitively expensive. And so, I think as time goes by, uh, you'll see more and more of those sort of pressures building up and more and more assets coming out to market. And hopefully that'll cause that bid-ask spread. And it's it's all you really need in a market like this. You need a little bit of capitulation from sellers. And remember, most of these buyers, if they've owned the asset for more than a couple of years, their rents have gone up dramatically, even with the, the recent deceleration and Rental growth and multifamily, but I don't think a lot of people are going to be taking you know, a huge uh, you know hit to their equity or walking away from equity. They're going to be able to exit at a discount to what they you know we all might have been able to sell an asset for in the first half of last year, but still you know get out with a return that, that's not going to be the end of the world. And so I think you'll have more capitulation, you'll have more you know decision makers willing to stroke the check, and you'll start to start to creep back towards, I don't think we'll get back to those uh, heady levels I was talking about before in 2021 for some time, but it's a big market. It's a lot of liquidity in multifamily and we'll see, see some uh, you know, some better numbers coming through, especially in the second half of this year would be my prediction. And as a former investment banker who's well-versed in M&A, how do you look at the opportunity set going forward, whether it's to acquire platforms and add units through that mean or simply you know, acquire areas of operational or business expertise that you may not have, but you think you'll need going forward. Is that something in the cards for Cortland or are you planning on kind of doing it more organically, you know, asset by asset, portfolio by portfolio? Yeah, I would anticipate that we'll continue to do it organically. We've grown very impressively just by sticking to our knitting and being as present as we are and with the sort of critical mass that we have in our target markets. Again, we can do seven billion of acquisitions in eighteen months. That's that's pretty good growth, just from a purely organic perspective. Uh, we have done M and A before. We've privatized a REIT, a smaller REIT. We we do look at those types of larger multi billion dollar deals. It's got to make sense from both sides. And I, you know, having having advised these public REITs for years, I know that even if some of our multifamily peers are trading at what appear to be, to me, discounts to their true NAV. You know, when the when the these very well respected uh, competitors of ours are trading at an implied six cap, uh, let's say, on high quality multifamily, that looks to me to be oversold in the public markets. Now, people may argue that uh, valuations in the private markets that are largely driven by appraisal firms that it's lagged, and I think there's some historical evidence to, to show that that is the case. The same thing on the downside, there's going to be a, a bit of a lag in terms of them updating their exit cap rates, their discount rates, uh, their underwriting assumptions. But you're starting to see it now, and you, you'll see it in the Odyssey figures starting to come through in the fourth quarter last year, the first quarter this year, you'll see those uh, underwriting assumptions starting to be adjusted. And so that, that sort of arbitrage that one might observe between those public companies and the private companies will shrink. And I think the reality is somewhere in between. 
But, you know, it's hard. It's these publicly traded REITs, they are rarely ever forced to sell. They have to be a willing seller. They have to have a, you know, an independent board and a management team that believes that somebody is offering a, a large enough premium to sort of the beat up values in the market today that, you know, it makes sense for the long term. And I think if I was one of those independent board members or management teams, I would say, listen, we've, we've got much better valuations to come. If we can just be a little bit patient here and no reason to sell at, at a discount if you don't have to. And those companies are all very well capitalized. So, you know, not to mention most of the small ones have already been privatized. So a lot of fairly large bites at the apple that remain out there. So I actually wouldn't expect a whole lot of M&A activity in the multifamily space. So you and I were both in Hong Kong during the global financial crisis. How does this current macroeconomic environment compare to what we experienced during the GFC based on where you sit today? It's surprisingly painful to me in terms of just investor sentiment. Somebody, I don't, what, I don't know what data set they were looking at, but they were claiming to us that the investor sentiment right now is more negative than it was during the GFC, the heights of the GFC, which to me makes no practical sense whatsoever. We don't have anywhere close to the structural issues that we had with uh, subprime lending and over leverage and development in the housing market and so forth. We have none of those you know, existential threats from where I sit. You know, you've got inflation, which I know sort of hits uh, you know investors and consumers kind of directly in their pocketbook when they go to the gas station or the grocery store. So I get that. But at the same time, you know, there's there's kind of worse things than inflation. There's, you know, the the cratering of the whole sort of global financial system when Lehman and Bear Stearns and others are going bankrupt. And, you know, with everything that was going in in subprime, I mean, inflation for us, for our business, it does rise, raise, excuse me, the, uh, you know, the cost of materials when we're doing development and when we're doing our renovations, it raises the cost of labor. You would think potentially it could hurt our residents in terms of their ability to pay rents. But at the same time, a lot of our residents are experiencing their own wage inflation that may be keeping up. Our portfolio actually happens to be quite affordable, small a affordable in the grand scheme of things. Our, uh, you know, We like to be in these uh, sunbelt markets that by their nature fundamentally have a cost of living advantage over the big gateway markets. We're not in New York or Boston or San Francisco or LA or Chicago or any of those bigger cities. And so you start from our average rents are about $1,800 a month for about a thousand square foot apartment on average. And our average resident is paying about 20% of their income in rent. So again, very much something that we proved out during COVID and other times that um, we, we haven't lost a lot of occupancy and our residents are able to pay the rents even when they've been spiking up a bit here in the last um, last couple of years. So I guess the big concern you know, in sort of a recession or, you know, stagflation type of scenario that some are calling for would be, you know, job losses. And clearly, fewer jobs is not good for multifamily. I, I still feel as though we've seen that movie before during the GFC, and there is a flight to quality during those times. Or even if you lose, let's say, worst case, 5% of jobs in the U.S., you've still got 95% of those people that still have a job, still looking to rent in some of the better markets where we are. And we think that we'll, on a relative basis, it uh, won't be pretty or fun for anybody, but on a relative basis, we'll benefit from our capitalization, our ability to continue to 
service these properties and to provide the same level of service, whereas I think other owners will start to cut back, cut corners, not mow the lawn every week, not uh, take the trash out every day, that sort of thing. You won't find Cortland doing that. So I think on a relative basis, we should be okay. The other thing, Brandon, I wanted to mention, I don't know if you personally focused on it, is the fact that the headline CPI numbers that everybody kvetches about and uh, that all the media is focused on, the CPI numbers, the, the main component, the, the biggest component of that is housing inflation, rental inflation. And that number that they're using, to me personally, makes no sense whatsoever. They're using a... That's classified as shelter, right? That's what you're referring to? Yeah. yeah. So the shelter inflation is based on this, to me, extremely outmoded survey approach where the government calls around to people on the phone and asks them how much they think they could rent their home for today. And that is the input that is going into the data that we are following. And so, you know, whether it's accurate or not, if you take enough, a large enough survey is one thing, but the the result of that is that you have a big lag. And it's been estimated by, you know, even the, the Cleveland Fed has written a paper recently that there's probably a a four-quarter lag, where if you look into that shelter number in CPI, it's still showing you know dramatically increasing rents, and we and our competitors are not seeing that. You know, obviously, rental growth has decelerated. It's still positive for us because we've got great assets and great markets, but it's nowhere near what that component of the CPI is showing. So the Cleveland Fed did a paper to show that if you use real-time data in terms of actual rents, you would see already these signals that. The actions that the Fed have taken are really, you know, having an impact, not just on other items, but on shelter in particular. So yeah, I think there's a growing awareness of that and that, you know, smart market participants will start to take that into account. I, I hope the Fed takes that into account as well and, and sees in a more real-time basis that their actions really have had the intended effect in starting to slow down the economy and not go too overboard with their interest rate rises, he says, hopefully. We'll make sure that for any uh, members or employees of the Fed who are listening to this, that take note to this specific section. So I appreciate you sharing that insight. I think it's interesting. And the devil is always in the details. Before we move on to the community side and, and a little bit more on the multifamily asset class, which we've touched on, you mentioned that sentiment has changed to much more negative today than perhaps even during the GFC or more negative than it was before. As somebody who is responsible for overseeing a business that uses outside investor capital, you know what are you hearing broadly from your investors and specifically around their allocations to multifamily, which I think across the board has been a sector in most favor by institutional investors over the last 24 to 36 months. What are you hearing today and how do you anticipate it might change going forward? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's no coincidence that I decided to move from a more generalist allocator model to a multifamily vertically integrated operator. I think multifamily is, to me, the most resilient, best performing sector moving forward. Others might argue industrial as well, but clearly those are the two uh, bells of the ball for the last few years. I think we'll continue to be just given some of the challenges you'll continue to have with the effect of online shopping on retail, work from home on office, etc. Some of the other sort of niche property types are very interesting, but they're all smaller, less liquid. Uh, multifamily alone, as you probably know, is larger than the entire stock market and bond market in the world combined. So it is a, it's not like cryptocurrency. There's no question about whether housing is going to stick around as, a, as an investment class. It has always been here and it's here to stay. 
So yeah, I do think it continues to be a favorite place for investors to put capital. Downside of that is that Cortland being kind of ahead of the curve and focusing on these, you know, Sunbelt suburban markets, you know, 10 plus years ago, which was absolutely the right call. That is no longer a uh, unique <laughs> perspective. It's a consensus perspective. So all the, all the smartest capital out there, even the diversified, you know, non-traded REITs and open-end funds and so forth are you know, heavily focused on getting capital into our markets, into our backyards and competing directly with us, which is fine. But imitation is the best form of flattery. And so I guess what I would say is that there, I, to me, there continues to be strong demand from investors for multifamily in as much as they are continuing to allocate dollars to real estate investing. I think multifamily has developed, I think, and earned a reputation as being one of the few good inflation hedges that there are out there across the whole you know, spectrum of financial assets. The fact that we have shorter term one-year leases, the fact that we're marketing the market constantly, that again, our residents... Wages go up in an inflationary environment, they're able to pay higher rent, puts us, I think, in very good stead in this kind of environment. And so, you know, the, the other trend that I had noticed, and one of the reasons, again, why I ended up coming to Cortland was just this whole idea that sophisticated institutional investors have evolved over time. And there will always be a place for, you know, the smart allocator managers, funds that are, you know, really have great research and are picking geographic and you know property type and risk spectrum you know allocations and a portfolio and that's incredibly valuable that's what my old firm did so well but when you have an investor that has conviction around well I definitely want to have exposure to multifamily apartments there's this increasing trend where that investor if it's a you know, pension fund sovereign wealth fund you know foundation endowment insurance company you name it uh, increasingly they will go around the allocator and say well I, I can pick my own favorite multifamily or industrial managers, I can cut out a layer of fees, I can go directly to those that are actually, you know, having some impact on the the branding and the operational excellence. And so as investors get more and more sophisticated, you see more and more, I think something like last year, about 40% of the capital went to property type specific managers as opposed to generalists. And it wouldn't surprise you that within that 40%, probably 85% of it went to industrial and multifamily pretty evenly split. So I think we're well positioned for the long term in terms of flow of capital. And as we've said for years, whereas you might say that some of the old school defined benefit, you know, US pension plans are pretty full up ostensibly on real estate if they're up to 10, you know, 12%. And certainly with the denominator effect that I don't need to belabor, we're all aware of the fact that for many they've gone from 10% to 15% overnight with their uh, real estate performing very well, but stocks and bonds going down in tandem at the same time. I still think there's a lot of foreign investors that are nowhere near that sort of 10, 15% exposure to US real estate. So two questions for you as my last two questions. The first is multifamily has obviously been the the bell of the ball and a great asset class, both in terms of performance and investor interest. If there is one thing that you're concerned about from a asset fundamentals perspective for multifamily, what would that be? Yeah, I, I guess the concern would be, you know, deteriorating credit quality. As I mentioned before, I, I don't lose a lot of sleep over that with our particular portfolio. We tend to be not at the very top luxury end. You'd have some concern if you were the absolute, you know, top rents in your markets. We aren't that. But at the same time, we're not in B and C quality assets where you start to really delve down into some more challenging 
credits with your residents that uh, really, really might be on the front lines of job losses and uh, you know struggles to to pay rent. We feel like we're in the sweet spot where some of those luxury renters may, uh, you know, if, if times are a little tough, may downgrade to want to be in our properties. But yeah, that is always the concern of multifamily is is just that. I mean, it is uh, you can always keep a multifamily asset full, which is one of the great benefits of the sort of diverse nature of our tenant base. You never, almost never have a, a true sort of white elephant like you can have in office or industrial where you have a, you know, a big empty building and you can't get that big lease. It's a single tenant or, you know, a few tenant uh, sort of assets. So you can always set your, set your rents to attract, you know, residents away from the competition. And, you know, fundamentally, one of the other reasons that I think multifamily is a great place to be is that we are still, you know, as I said before, underbuilt in the U.S., depending on, Whose statistics you want to listen to? We're actually at the low side in our estimates is that we're about a million units underbuilt. This is across multi and single family in the United States. That number has been shrinking a little bit as we've had some pretty good supply in some of these markets. You can find other sources that will tell you we're four or five million units uh, underbuilt. But that's a, that's a good place to be. You know, everything in financial services at the end of the day is down to supply and demand. So I feel pretty good about the fact that there is you know, still strong demand for our product. We had quite a lot of supply. I think even that supply will start to taper off a bit just based on where interest rates are. It's going to be harder and harder to develop. So that may actually be a quite quite healthy dose of restraint uh, on the development side in the next couple of years. Great. And my last question is more of a prediction on your end. And you know, I think we can have some fun with it. But how many times do you think the Fed will raise rates over the next 12 months? I think they've only got two more left in them. I think, uh, and whether it's you know 50 next time and 25 the next time, I really do think that some of the numbers are starting to move in the right direction, especially if you look at the the proper shelter component of the CPI and you know based on jobs numbers I've seen and so forth. I think there's a recognition that U.S. and the global economy is like a super tanker; it doesn't turn on a dime. And when you start to see it going in a certain direction, uh, to me, you, you sort of you know tap the brakes. A little bit, and obviously there's there's political dynamics and all of this as well. You know, not wanting to create a recession just through the you know the, the Fed's actions and how that sort of reflects on you know the current administration and so forth. So I think we're heading into that sort of slowdown and then uh, you know pretty stable view. Our, our house view is actually that we will see interest rate cuts before the end of 2023. So we're a little bit ahead of some of the prognosticators out there, but that is our view. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jason, for joining me today. It's been a great conversation and I appreciate you sharing your insights with us. And we look forward to seeing how both Cortland and the market performs in the coming years. Thanks again for joining me today. Thanks, Brent. Good to see you again. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. Subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.